reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. That can be found on page 1150 of the Bibles under the seat in front of you. On covering the head in worship, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Good morning. I was thinking, wasn't I meant to be on holidays this week and it was Scott's turn to preach? (laughs) Scott's been doing a great job and it's uh, my first week back preaching and uh, we've got this passage. I was talking to the lady who was reading the Bible at five o'clock and the end of the conversation went like this. She said, oh well, good luck. So let's pray. Dear Lord, on this no doubt intriguing yet difficult passage, we do pray for ourselves. I pray that you give me clarity and compassion and for all of us wisdom and grace to not just understand what's being said here but to apply it to our lives as people both individually and as our church together corporately. Lord, be with us in this next half hour in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you hear me preach week by week, you'll know that there's a certain pattern. Uh, I'll typically introduce what is the main idea generated from the passage that we're looking at. And then I'll take the rest of the time to work our way through the Bible passage And we'll try and work through slowly and carefully and thoughtfully and think about what it's saying to us and what it means in terms of God wanting to change our life. And it's always centred in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd normally want to finish by exhorting us to not just believe the word of God, which is what we believe it is, but to apply the word of God to our life. Now I'm not going to do that today. Uh, Not in the sense of not believing this is the Word of God. I absolutely believe this is the Word of God as much as the rest of Scripture. 
And not in the sense of not applying it to our lives. Of course I want to do that. But there's no doubt that even just a cursory reading of the text tells you that this is a difficult passage to preach on. It's a difficult passage to understand. If you've read it just for the first time, you might be thinking, what on earth is going on? And when I read it for the 50th time, I thought, what on earth is going on? It's kind of one of those passages. And so I want to spend a fair amount of time, much, much more than what I would normally do, to just reflect about the passage, because in 30 minutes, I actually can't do justice to all the issues in detail. There's uh, a lot there that you could talk about. And I've got four things I want to work through uh, in thinking about worship, but it's worth saying I do feel like I'm that guy uh, and got the target on the chest with a message like this. And I do remember my old boss, Rod Irvine. He uh, used to, with a, a smile and a uh, cheeky wink, say, if you want to stab me, stab me in the chest, not the back. I'd rather talk to people about our disagreements rather than hearing about it secondhand. And so let's think on a number of levels about what the passage has to say to us today. And firstly, I want us just to think about difficult passages. passages. How do we read them when we come across them in Scripture? Secondly when you come across what you might call divisive passages. And what I mean by that is passages where Christians who are faithful Christians have very strong and deep disagreements about what they think it's about. And there's no doubt this is one of those passages. Thirdly, we're then going to dive into the text and think, okay, what is it that's unclear in this passage? And just acknowledge that because there are some difficulties here. And lastly, um, I'm going to spend some time taking you through, fairly briefly it's worth saying, what I think is clear in the passage and what we need to do in terms of understanding that and applying it to our lives. But firstly, let's think about difficult passages. How do we read them? There's no doubt there are easy passages to read and typically my staff get to preach on them. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13 is coming up shortly. It is a great passage to speak on. It's not that hard to understand. Love is primary in the church. Forget about everything else you might be doing. If you're not doing anything with love, it's useless. It's that simple. It's that clear. It's a great message to preach. But you come to passages like today and you think, why couldn't God have spoken his word in a way that's a bit easier to understand? There seems issues here that just seem so foreign to us. Now, I don't know if this is any comfort to you. It's comfort to me as a preacher. But when you read the Apostle Peter, he's got some wonderful things to say. But one of the most intriguing things I find is in the end of 2 Peter chapter 3. And he says this about the Apostle Paul. He says, actually, when you read the Apostle Paul's letters, they contain some things that are hard to understand. And so if you find this hard to understand, you're in good company. The Apostle Peter thought the same thing about his apostolic brother Paul and passages can be hard to understand for a number of reasons and there can be difficulties for a number of reasons there's textual difficulties that we can have in other words there can be original language issues of just trying to understand what it says in Greek and what does that actually translate to in English and we've got one of those particular issues today with a particular word called kephale, head. What does that word mean? And so you can have textual difficulties. There can be grammatical translation issues. But a second reason texts can be different is difficult as manuscript issues. You see, for most of Scripture, nearly all of it, we've got great clarity and certainty about what the original text said when it was written. But there are some parts of scripture where we go we're not quite sure what the manuscript was saying we've got a couple of different versions and we're not sure which one is the one to actually look at now if you want 
to look at one particular example. Mark chapter 16 is an example of that. If you look in your English Bibles, there's actually two endings that are put there. Uh, and there's a third that may be printed. Now, I think it's the short ending for finishing at verse 8, unlike um, what you've got there in the text, which has 9 to 20 as an addition. But the Bible acknowledges that in terms of the manuscripts. Now, let me just say there's a very, very few amount of these textual difficulties that we have that have any significance. But thirdly, there can be historical difficulties. You see, this book was written hundreds of years ago, literally, And what may have been obvious to the readers of the day, sometimes is not so obvious to us in this day, 2,000 years on. And we've got one of those issues today. What is he talking about, actually, just from a historical point of view, with the hair coverings? I'm going to come to that. But there's no doubt sometimes we do have historical difficulties. But I want to say probably the biggest issue is we can have theological difficulties, And what I mean by that is this, Uh, what do we do with passages that we don't understand or more importantly don't like what's being said? Now an example on this issue of theological difficulties, there's a number of them, one would be the topic of hell. It is a difficult topic to talk about. We're talking about ultimate reality and ultimate ends for people that we know. And the very fact that Jesus mentioned hell more than anyone else in the Bible is unmistakable. Yet that doesn't mean it's easy to accept. And the history of the church is one where people have tried to soften the teaching of Jesus on this matter, where in fact Jesus is incredibly clear. He says there is a heaven and a hell and people will go there based on their responses and trust in him and in our Father God. And when we come to this passage today, there's no doubt for me that 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those theologically difficult passages because of what it says about men and about women. You might say this, it seems so culturally obsolete. What are we doing reading it here this morning in church? And if you think that, I can understand why you might think that. Because on a surface reading of the text, it does seem so culturally obsolete. So how do we read difficult passages? Well, I want to say firstly, with care for the text. We actually need to realise and keep believing that all of Scripture is inspired by God. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so we need to bring our minds to every text we come to and seek to understand what's being said and what isn't being said. It's amazing how we can be blinkered in our reading of the text because we don't take time to read it slowly and to read it carefully and thoughtfully and not to allow preconceived ideas block our understanding of what actually is being said. So we need to be careful with the text. We also need to be open to the text because our deep belief here is that this text is the word of God and as we understand it, God is actually going to be speaking to us in our own lives and my thinking needs to be open to change because my preconceived thoughts may be wrong so we need to come with openness to the word of God and we need to come with respect for the text we must at the end of the day come to the text believing it is God's word and not just that it's God's word that it's actually good for us it's good for our life together it's good for me individually as I believe it and as I follow it 
even if it appears completely out of step with our culture. And we've dealt with some of the issues which are like that in terms of human sexuality in term two. But lastly, we need to come with respect for the Apostle Paul. And I say that because one of the things that uh, I've heard through my years as a Christian is uh, there's a temptation to think, well, look, I'm going to listen to Jesus, but I'm not going to listen to Paul because, you see, Paul, um, I think he's too much a product of the culture of his day. He is a patriarchal thinker. He potentially might be a misogynist on this issue. Uh, I like the Lord Jesus more. He loved women in appropriate ways and he lifted them up and he was a revolutionary and he's thinking about gender issues. Let me just say, if I can say gently, uh, Paul was actually Jesus' pick. He was kind of the captain's pick. Jesus took Paul on the Damascus Road and turned him around, brought him to faith and called him and commissioned him to go and write and to preach and to teach the churches and particularly to teach the non-Jewish churches. He's actually our man, our apostle and he's Jesus' man. And the last thing Jesus would want us to do is to separate him and his apostle. And so we've got to treat Paul with as much respect as we would treat Jesus because he is Jesus' apostle. And that's the way he starts all his letters. And so that's the first thing. How do we deal with difficult passages? Carefully, open, respecting the text and the word of God before us. But there's no doubt this isn't just difficult, it's divisive. And if you've been in churches long enough you'll know that people have different opinions on this particular issue and this passage 1 Corinthians 11 uh, you come to chapter 14 verse 34 and 35 where it talks about women being silent and a few others in the New Testament 1 Timothy chapter 2 about women not teaching in a mixed congregational setting Ephesians 5 and headship in marriage 1 Peter 3 and headship in marriage and no doubt these passages have been a battleground for scholars in terms of thinking about what it means on the issue of men and women's ministry. And on this issue, it's worth saying men and women who are genuinely converted, following Christ, who believe Scripture is the Word of God, have come to some fundamental disagreements on what it means. And it's just worth acknowledging it on a day like today. And you could rightly say that the issues before us today are those of social justice along with biblical faithfulness and you see over the last 50 years there's been massive changes to our culture and our society and I went through that back at the beginning of turn two when we looked at human sexuality the way the sexual revolution has taken place in Australia and the impact on our thinking about what it means to be sexual people and what sexual faithfulness looks like and the challenge of the word of God that speaks into that culture that we're called to maintain biblical purity and sexual purity and holiness in relationships. Well, just as in that issue over the last 50 years, we've also seen incredible changes in areas of thinking about gender. There's been the so-called feminist or women's liberation movement that's involved massive changes in thinking about marriage, family, gender-based expectations of men and women in family, society and the workplace. It's been a revolution of sorts. And so it's hardly surprising that when we as Christians today consider areas of life from the word of God regarding men and women that we're going to be challenged by our culture to think about this and we're going to push, be pushed in certain ways and so there's a motion in discussion 
And there will be some who see that the Bible endorses some of the changes that have been borne out through the feminist revolution with a concern for justice, for the dignity and value of all people, which is only enhanced when you are one in Christ Jesus. And it's something we must take on. Yet there'll be other Christians who will see the Bible requiring a certain good order in not just human sexuality and sexual behaviour, but an ordering of relationships of the genders between husbands and wives, men and women, between parent and children. And to the extent that the revolution has represented an overthrowing of biblical order, they would say, well, it needs to be resisted. And so how do we relate together is the question, because I know even within our own congregations, we will have people who sit on opposite side of the fence, so to speak. And I want to say a couple of things. Firstly, I want to say, see and be glad when brothers and sisters care about justice and righteousness, when they're disturbed by men who seem to think they are superior to women or by women being treated as less important, less valuable or less significant than men, when brothers and sisters react against traditional ways because they see a history of oppression and ill treatment, take care to appreciate this because it is a right thing that has taken place. And in church life, there actually is nothing commendable about social conservatism for its own sake. We want to be at least as good as the society about us in issues of fairness and justice and treating one another fairly and properly. And no doubt we feel decidedly uncomfortable with church practices that seem to belong to another age. Practices that seem to care less about fairness and equality than our society does. And is it not frankly embarrassing to belong to a church that seems to treat women as second class members? But let me say on the other side, see and be glad when brothers and sisters care about faithfulness to God's word, who approach God's word with the assumption that what we find there is good no matter what the world may think. You see, when brothers and sisters believe God's word more than they believe the voice of culture, when they work very hard to see their culture through the lens of God's word rather than the other way around. And I want to say take care to appreciate this because this is also very important. And so together what we need to do is actually continue to search and study the scriptures to understand them well, to understand them compassionately and to live together according to them. Well, that's the second thing. How do we treat each other? With a recognition of what each other brings, but with a commitment to actually going back to Scripture time and time again to discover the truth. Well, let's move to the passage. You've got your Bibles open. It's a longer than normal introduction, as I said, and I'm halfway through. I really could stand here for a long time if you wanted me to. I've been reading on this one since the start of the year. Page 1150, 1 Corinthians 11. When I look at this passage, I see sex. I see sex. I do not see sex. I, I see gender. I've been hanging out with too many Kiwis of late. At least that's my excuse. I have been, to be truthful. Went fishing with one on Friday. Um, I see six, number six, textual difficulties.
what was I thinking anyway? Number one, verse three and following. What is the meaning of the word head? There's no doubt it's a disputed word in scholarship today. And I'm going to talk about what I think it means, but it's worth saying this is a textual difficulty. Does the word have connotations of authority or, as some other writers have suggested, does it mean source where there's no idea of authority contained in the word? And you can see that at the very beginning, verse 3, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And then there's this large discussion about heads being honoured, dishonoured. What does it actually mean? That's the first one. Uh, Second difficulty is this, verse 3 and following, did Paul refer to husbands and wives or is he referring to men and women in general? Now the reason I say that is because the words that are used there are interchangeable. Only context will give you the answer. I think in particular he's talking about men and women and I think there's application there that goes on to talk about husbands and wives but I'll leave that for the moment. Verse 4 and 5, what is the meaning and nature of prophecy? And what is this really meaning? Because you see, what he wants to say is men and women should prophesy in church together. They should be praying together. There should be a mutual ministry at that level of the genders. But what does it actually mean? Well, I'm not going to address that today. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks' time when I come back to 1 Corinthians 14 where that particular issue comes up. Difficulty number four, how does this passage relate to other passages on women speaking or not speaking in church? This passage actually encourages women to prophesy and pray in ways that are appropriate. Then you come to just a couple of chapters ahead in chapter 14 and he says in a very kind of abrupt and abrasive manner almost, women must be silent in church. And yet here they can prophesy and pray. Is he contradicting himself? Uh, I'm going to just address that one very quickly here because um, time permits or time doesn't permit to say much more, only to say I think this tells you that there absolutely is a place and it's right that we have women and men ministering side by side in the parish together and on the platform together. The passage that talks about being silent, if I can use an illustration to explain my position, it would be like my wife Kathy. where are you darling? Somewhere up the back. And at the end of the sermon, Kath stands up, walks down and says to everyone, look, Bruce got it completely wrong. Um, what were you thinking, Bruce? It's actually this. Now, she may think that. <laughs> but what Paul is saying is it's not appropriate in the public gathering for that kind of speech to be displayed. They need to be silent in the level of argumentation and questioning what's being taught and not create a ruckus. And if she's got questions, she should... Talk to me back home, not in front of the congregation. I think that's what's being addressed in that particular passage. Uh, Problem number five, the references to head coverings. Now, it's interesting, the NIV, we've got the 2011, actually talks about hair in verse six. She may as well have her hair cut off. Um, When it talks about coverings, up until verse 14, there's no nouns used in the original language. It's just verbs and adjectives. It's describing actions of covering, uncovering. Uh, The only noun used is head. But what is not being referred to is what is the covering of the head, if I can put it that way. And so there's probably 10 different versions of possibilities that people have postulated is being referred to here. What is it that actually is the head covering? 
is one of the historical difficulties that we have. I think it's actually hair. I'm going to come to that when we go through the passage shortly. But there's no doubt that makes some of the, if I can say, assumptions you might make about the passage qualified. And then the last one, and to top it, all off, top it all off, apparently women should have their head covered with authority because of the angels. Now, if the passage wasn't difficult enough before then, it's like Paul thought, I'm just going to make it a bit harder and uh, make you work a bit longer, Bruce, but because the angels as well. Now, I'm going to leave that section. It's only an aside. It's not really a key part of what the passage is talking about. But if you want a one-word description, it's because the angels are watching over you and that's another reason why order should be maintained in the church. Now what we've got to do is actually avoid two extremes in seeking to understand and apply this passage to our life together here at St Matt's. One extreme is uncritical fundamentalism that reads the text with no thought of context, uh, with no appreciation of the difficulties, with no awareness of the debates that have taken place in the church on the important issues of gender and ministry. We need to be sensitive and thoughtful about the text in front of us. But similarly, we must be aware of cloudy thinking and avoid it. Because cloudy thinking says something like this. This text is difficult, this is controversial, we can't be clear and certain of anything and so we really should just avoid it. And so while intellectually we say this is God's word, we actually dismiss its relevance by saying, well, we just can't know what's being said. And I want to say, actually, there are things that are very clear here and are very helpful, if not completely clear, to make sense of. And so I want to go through for the last 10 minutes and just ask the question, what is clear in this passage and what do we need to apply to our lives together? And the first thing I want to note is this, there is a creation order that needs to be outworked in our church life together. And this really is one of the biggest points of the whole passage. Now there's no doubt there's a particular cultural issue that has taken root that Paul is addressing. And it's a very practical one to do with head coverings. But that's not where Paul starts his argument from. He addresses it not from the cultural and the particular, but from, if I can say, the theological and the creation order that is in general. And he works from the general theological principle to the particular cultural application. And where he starts is in thinking about the Trinity, the personhood of God, and what it means to be men and women in creation who are created in his image. And that theological theme basically undergirds the whole passage. And so what Paul is saying here actually is a principle that is, if I can say, covers all cultures. No doubt there'll be cultural applications and differences in how it outworks in particular cultures. But he starts by reflecting on who we are in relation to God in Trinity. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Now what needs to be said is, All of, if I can say, humanity is equal in creation, just as all are one in Christ Jesus. There's neither male nor female, slave nor free, etc., etc., Jew nor Gentile. We are equal in creation. There's no rank in creation between men and women. But yet there is an ordering that is very distinctive here. 
And it's an ordering that is reflected in the Trinity. And you see, that's how he finishes. The head of Christ is God. And so within the context of equality as men and women, there's an ordering of relationships within that equality. And what is true, if I can say, of the genders is true of the Godhead. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have existed in perfect communion together and there's no ranking of them, first, second, third. They are co-equal and they're co-eternal. That's what the creeds proclaim. But yet within that co-eternity and co-eternal relationships of Father, Son and Spirit, what you see here, Paul says, is that the Father is actually the head of the Son. Now you see that expressed in particular in Jesus' life on earth. And he would say things like this. I'm just reading from John chapter 14, verse 31. It's one particular example of a number of them. And Jesus said, The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And so there's a relationship where, if I can say they are equal, but yet the Father has an authority to command and direct the Son. And the Son, in submission to the Father, joyfully obeys. I've done what, exactly what my Father has commanded me. And so as there is order in the Godhead, what Paul is saying is there's order in relationships between men and women. Equal in rank and equal in personhood and equality and equal in salvation, yet a difference in ordering. But the question comes then, what does it mean to be head? Now this is kind of where the controversy is. And let me just make um, a few comments. While I acknowledge that this is a contended word, I actually believe the meaning is very clear. And I say this because when you look at the dictionaries of the Greek language, there is a clear meaning of the word head in Greek when describing a person figuratively as a head. Now there's kind of three main areas of meaning for the word head. There's literally like the head of a body. We've all got one. Then you can have it used figuratively. figuratively. Now, a common example would be, who is the head of Australia? We have a Prime Minister. Tony Abbott is the head of the country. He leads us and he has an authority that goes with that. Now, who's the head of New South Wales? It's Mike Baird. He leads us. He has an authority. And when you look at the dictionaries, all but one of them, Sorry, I should say all of them say this. The concept of source is only recognised in one of the actual dictionaries. And because of the, if I can say, the debate that's gone on, um, one of the scholars wrote to the editor of this dictionary, it's Liddell and Scott, and put forward his research. And the editor said of the dictionary that says it might mean source, actually they're wrong to say it means source. At best, it could describe an end point for a river in terms of a geographical position. The end of the river, the source of the river, is the head of the river. In other words, it delineates a position geographically. But whenever it is used in the context of relationships figuratively and a person being a head, it speaks of a relationship of, being of leadership and authority. But I want to qualify that idea because there's no doubt that idea has been misused and abused in church and in culture. It's one of the reasons why domestic violence is such an abhorrent thing of our current society. Men think that they rule women 
and can boss them around and use them. In the Bible, the concept of headship is modelled and taught in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where we must understand what biblical headship means. It flows from seeing Christ who is the head of his church. And what you see with the Lord Jesus Christ is he led and had authority and he used that to serve and to sacrifice. And I take it that's what it means for men to be heads. They have no authority to boss and command women as they see fit. Rather, there's a spiritual authority to lead in prayer and in the word. And you see that outworked in church life, in particular in the issue of authoritative teaching, which is why we have male teaching. And that's the first thing to note. There is an order in creation that Paul wants to establish at the beginning. And what you can see, secondly, as you go through, is that we can subvert that order by how we dress. And so let me just read through from verse 4. And we're going to kind of move very quickly. Every man or woman who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have had her hair cut off. But it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. In other words, both men and women can bring dishonor. And what does it mean by that? there's a sense of which we are dishonouring God. We are dishonouring the order in which we've been created. And the way that dishonouring takes place is, I think, if I can put it this way, men and women, when they are not looking like men and women, is the issue that Paul is addressing here. And you see that the particular issue of the covering is actually hairstyles. So have a look at verse 14 where it becomes explicit. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. And you saw earlier that it's a disgrace for her to have her head shaved. And you see, the cultural issue of the day was this. Um, It appears that some women might have been dressing, if I can say, hairstyles in a way that brought dishonour to their gender. They're actually not looking like women. And for the Greco-Roman culture, short hair spoke of masculinity. Now, it's interesting because that is a cultural, if I can say, depiction of masculinity. You wouldn't say Vikings were wusses, would you, with their long hair? (laughs) But you see, it's culturally determined. Now, people can have weird hairstyles and they can sort of want it to mean all sorts of things. Now, here's one weird hairstyle. Now, what are they trying to communicate? That evolution is taking place? (laughs) It's like a duck. (laughs) How about this one? I'm not sure what to make of that. But let me say to the men, I will come and chat to you if this is your haircut. (laughs) It's probably up there long enough, isn't it? (laughs) Now, I can understand if you've got a carpet on your chest, you might want to get it off. I don't, so anyway. But you see, what's taking place? The issue is their head coverings, their hairstyle is bringing dishonour. And 13 and 14 
for me are the clues. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? In other words, short shaven hair. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory. And so in that culture, long hair for women communicated femininity, short hair masculinity. Now you might think, is this really about haircuts? Well, it is, but it's about much more than that. It's actually about women and men being happy to be women and men and to actually want to demonstrate and be feminine and be masculine and to be a man and to be a woman. You see, what is it that's dishonouring? What's bringing shame? It's actually to deny who you are in God, in creation, that you are a man and that you are a woman. And the passage is saying to us, actually, there is a glory when we recognise that. And there is something glorious about manhood and womanhood. Now, it's interesting, I was talking to one of the kids and uh, we were commenting on a particular girl's haircut that they had been associated with. And the girl had shaved completely the side of the head. And I said, what's with that hairstyle? She said, oh, she's bisexual. It's a visual marker. And there's no doubt you will see people who have lesbian haircuts. They're shaving their hair. Why? Because they're wanting to, in a sense, buck against gender stereotypes and take on a more masculine look. Now, some women shave their hair for health reasons with uh, chemotherapy, completely understandable. But you see, gender can be depicted by our hairstyles. Now, it's interesting, hair length. Long hair doesn't communicate what it might have 50 years ago. Long hair 50 years ago on a guy may have been telling you that he wanted to feminise his body. Today, it's more likely that he's saying he likes 70s rock bands and still stuck in the 70s with the uh, rock era. And you see, this is the reality. In our culture, men and women are having hairstyles that blur genders. And that's what the issue was back then. And Paul wanted the men to look like men and the women to look like women culturally. And you see it in verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Men be proud and happy that you are a man. Women, be proud and happy that you are a woman. And we need to actually reflect that in our life together. And the beautiful thing about this passage is what it's saying is that we actually need both. You see, there's a complementary nature about us as men and women. And we complement each other with masculinity and femininity. And both are needed in church life together. We need both to be praying together. We need both to be prophesying or speaking the word of God to each other under the inspiration of God's spirit. I'm going to come to that more when we come to 1 Corinthians 14. But there should be a richness about community and congregational life as men and women minister to each other appropriately, if I can say respecting and understanding and being men and women. Now you might ask, well, why no women preaching? Because in that relationship of headship, Paul says that that's a male role for authoritative teaching in the congregation together and to 
change that would be to overturn a creation order. You see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so what's the application for us here as I finish up? Dress in a way that reflects your gender and glorifies God when we worship together here in church. And you might well ask, well, what does that mean? Well, it's culturally determined. I've had a person come and say, look, the women here are dressing like men. And I said, oh, why is that? And they said, because they have jeans on. I won't go into the full details. It wasn't that edifying. But I thought I have no problems with women wearing jeans. It's not a cultural marker for a woman wanting to be a man. In the same way men, I would say, don't cross-dress, either publicly or privately. We need to respect our gender and be comfortable in it. And it is worth saying we actually should not be taking our cues from society about what masculinity is or femininity necessarily because, you see, one of the cues for um, men about what it means to be masculine is you've got to have a six-pack. Now, let me say, my kids laugh at me when they see me go for a swim because that's the furthest thing that I have. I don't think it looks that bad, but anyway. You look at all the men's magazines and masculinity is defined by muscular delineation in your abdomen. You know what real masculinity is when you come to the scriptures? And Paul addresses it in the other passage, which is so controverted in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He actually says, men, stop fighting and arguing, which is often what we tend to do in our masculinity, and actually start praying. And lift up holy hands to God in prayer. It's one of the few commands to men specifically. Because you see, our authority as men is to be leading in the word of God in prayer. And you'll see a healthy church when you see men serving and sacrificing for the sake of the body and when you see men leading in the word of God and in prayer. That's where real masculinity comes out and that's what you see in the Lord Jesus who was unafraid of those around who wanted to honour his father and his strength was directed to lead his people in the word of God. And prayer. Friends, my time is up, but let us rejoice in each other appropriately. And let us maintain gender distinctions in the sense of rejoicing in what we have together as men and women, because we need each other. And that's why Paul says in verse 11 and 12, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so is also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for this passage and we thank you that there is an order to this world you've created. May we respect that, may we live according to it and may we rejoice in each other as men and women. And may we have a strong church, a masculine church, but also a feminine church. And a church that together, with the complementary mix of men and women, brings glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have got any questions, I'm happy to chat to you afterwards. Thank you.